The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, this is the third sermon in a four-part series on predestination. So predestination is the Bible's teaching that God predetermined the destiny of certain individuals for salvation and others for condemnation. And in this series, I'm attempting to answer one big question. What does the whole Bible teach about predestination? And to do that, I have crafted and arranged 15 questions. In the first sermon, I introduced the series, and then I answered these three questions about election. First, what is the goal of election? The goal of election is for God to save us so that we praise him for his glorious grace. That's the goal. Question two, when did God choose to save humans? God chose to save humans before he created the world. And question three, did God choose to save individuals? Yes, God chose to save individuals. That was sermon one. In the second sermon, I answered three more questions about election. This is last week. So question four, did God choose to save individuals on the basis of his foreseeing, seen ahead, that they would freely choose to believe in him? No, the, the basis of election is God's for love. Question five, so was unconditional election unfair? No, unconditional election is merciful and gracious. And then question six, does unconditional election entail or mean that we don't have a free will? Well, it depends what you mean by free. We don't have a free will in the sense that we can equally make alternative choices. We have a free will in the sense that we always choose what we most want. Now, now here's where we're going in this sermon. Four more questions about election. Question seven. Is God's sovereign choice to save only some humans compatible with God's desire that all humans be saved? Do those fit together? Question eight. How does God do this? How does he accomplish and apply his sovereign plan to save individuals? How does he work this out in history? Question nine. How do we know if God has elected an individual? How do I know if I'm elect? And then question 10, did God elect babies who die and the severely mentally disabled? Are they elect? You want to start with question 10, don't you? You got to wait. All right, let's start with question seven. Is God's sovereign choice to save only some humans compatible with his desire that all humans be saved? Well, who among us can fully understand the will of a finite human. Think of the person in this world you know the best. Do you fully understand that person's will? Fully? It shouldn't surprise us that we can't fully understand the will of the infinite and incomprehensible God. So I'd like to answer this question. Uh, is God's sovereign choice to save only some humans compatible with his desire that all humans be saved? I'd like to answer that in three steps. Here's the first one. We must distinguish two aspects 
of God's will. And I should just mention up front here that Pastor John Piper's fingerprints are all over my answer to this question about God's will. And the resource that has most influenced my thinking here is is a little booklet he wrote, 62 pages, called Does God Desire All to be Saved? It's free as a PDF at desiringgod.org. So God has one will. That's why I'm saying two aspects of God's one will. In order for us finite creatures to make sense of specific statements in Scripture, I think we must distinguish two aspects of God's one will, two ways that God wills. Say it like this. One way is what God would like to see happen, and the other way is what God actually wills to happen. And I'm going to show you a table here with biblical examples for those two ways. Again, what God would like to see happen, and then what God actually wills to happen. Here's the first example, the first row. Moses says to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. God would like Pharaoh to let his people go. That's what he would like to see happen when Moses says that. And at the same time, God says, I will harden his heart. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Well, do you want to let the people go or not? Well, he would like to see it happen, but he has actually willed something else. Here's another example. In Ezekiel 33, the Lord says, I have no pleasure, that translates a Hebrew word, hafez, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Well, look at this story from 1 Samuel 2 about Eli and his sons. They would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will, translates that same word that Ezekiel translates over here, pleasure. It was the will of the Lord to put them to death. There's a distinction here between what God would like to see happen and what he actually wills to happen. Here's another example from Acts 2. You crucified and killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men. In other words, you murdered. The Bible says don't murder. God says don't murder. He would like to see happen that you not murder people. And, and in this specific instance, people were guilty of murdering Jesus. At the same time, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's Acts 2.23. You can see the same kind of, of juxtaposition, a harmony of, of the, the, our tension here in Acts 4.27 and 4.28. And all of these examples illustrate the one we're focusing on, and that's this one. God genuinely desires all people to be saved. Jesus says, it's not the will of my Father who's in heaven that any one of these little ones should perish. But here's what God actually wills to happen. God sovereignly chose to save only some people. Jesus also prayed, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So what do we do with these two categories, this tension we feel? And this is where theologians can help us. Theologians distinguish two ways that God wills with various terms. I'll show you four pairings. One is commanded will and decreed will. So the commanded will is what God commands. It, it doesn't always happen, like don't murder. He commands that, but sometimes people murder. The decreed will is what God decrees to happen, and it always happens. Here's another way to, to put it. Moral will and sovereign will. God's moral will is something we should obey. 
God tells us what's right and wrong, but we often don't obey God. His sovereign will is what he ordains, and it always happens. Moral sovereign. Or you could say revealed and secret or hidden. So revealed, God's revealed will is God tells us what we must do. He reveals that to us. And then his secret or hidden will is that God normally does not reveal his detailed plan to us ahead of time. Maybe with the exception of Daniel 10. All right. And here's, here's another one. This, is, this last row is from John Piper. Looking at a painful or wicked event through a narrow lens. So Piper says God sees the tragedy or the sin for what it is in itself. And he is angered and grieved. And then you could look at a painful or wicked event through a wide angle lens. Piper says God sees the tragedy or the sin in relation to everything leading up to it and everything flowing out from it. He sees in it all the connections and effects that form a pattern or mosaic stretching into eternity. And this mosaic, with all its good and evil parts, he does delight in. So, to answer a question, does God desire all people to be saved? The answer is yes and no. Yes, in the sense that he would like to see that happen. And no, in the sense that God did not actually will for that to happen. Otherwise, everyone would be saved. And the Bible rejects universalism, so we can rule that out. Many are called, but few are chosen. That's step one, distinguishing two aspects of God's will. Here's step two. God values something else more highly than saving all humans without exception. I'm going to refer here to Arminianism and Calvinism again. And for an overview of those basic ways of interpreting the Bible, I'll just refer you back to the introduction of Sermon 1. But here I just want to mention this. Arminians and Calvinists agree in at least three areas here. Number one, not all humans, without exception, will be saved. Some will not be saved. Number two, in some sense, God wills in two distinct ways. They agree. And then third, God does not save all humans without exception because God values something else more highly. There's agreement here. Here's where the disagreement is. What is it that God values more highly? What is that something else that God values more highly than saving all humans without exception? Here are their answers. According to Arminianism, God more highly values a genuinely loving relationship, which they argue, uh, which Arminians argue, requires us to have a free will in the sense that we can equally make alternative choices. According to Calvinism, God more highly values displaying his glory and mercy and wrath and receiving all the glory for sovereignly saving individuals. As I argued in Sermon 2 last week, I think that God's choice, not our choice, is the deciding factor. That's what Calvinism is arguing here. God's choice is decisive or ultimate. I think Arminianism implies that our choice is decisive or ultimate. But I think a passage like Second Timothy 2, and it leads me to affirm that God's choice is decisive. Second Timothy 2.25, Paul writes that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. So repentance is a gift 
that God gives to only some. So that's a second step. Here's a, a third step. How can this be? How can God's desire to save people be genuine if he has decreed not to save them? I think an example might help here to illustrate that distinguishing two ways that God wills is reasonable and not doublespeak. Before I give you this, the example, let me just concede up front that analogies about human wills break down because they can't flawlessly illustrate God's will. For example, we humans may have confused and mutually inconsistent feelings, but God is not conflicted like we can be. Here's the, here's the example. It's a story. So while Miguel Menendez was head coach of a high school baseball team in Tampa, Florida, he had to make a difficult decision. He called it probably the hardest thing I've had to do in my life. On the one hand, he wanted his oldest child, Miguel Jr., to play on his baseball team. On the other hand, he wanted to be a successful and fair head coach of a program that had just won the state championship in 2019 and that collegiate baseball had ranked as the number one high school team in America. So the father decided to cut his son from the team during, base by tri- during baseball tryouts during his son's junior year. His desire for his son to play on his team really was genuine. But he more highly valued being a successful and fair coach. Now that example illustrates that it's possible for a person to genuinely have two competing desires and to act in accord with one desire without in any way making the other desire fake or false. In a similar way, again, not a perfect parallel, but in a similar way, Jesus is not pretending to feel compassion when he laments in Matthew 23, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. But it doesn't follow necessarily that our free choice must be decisive or ultimate in order for Jesus' compassion or God's love to be genuine. It's sensible it's reasonable to distinguish two ways that God wills. So here's my answer to question seven. Is God's sovereign choice to save only some humans compatible with God's desire that all humans be saved? Yes, if we properly distinguish between what God would like to see happen and what God actually wills to happen. Let's consider now question eight. How does God accomplish and apply his sovereign plan to save individuals? In other words, if if election is that before the foundation of the world, God sovereignly and graciously chose to save individual sinners, this question is asking, how does he he work that out in history? How, How does this happen? And I would say in three ways. First, God accomplishes his sovereign plan to save individuals through Christ's saving work. That's what makes it possible. Second, God initially applies his sovereign plan to save individuals through the Holy Spirit's regenerating work. So we start out spiritually dead, and the Holy Spirit 
gives us spiritual life. That's his regenerating work. And third, God ordained that individuals would repent and believe through two means, hearing God's word and through prayer. And there's so much we could say here, but I'm going to focus on this third way, the God-ordained means of hearing God's word and prayer. If God ordains that you will live for the rest of this sermon, then that means that you will keep on breathing and your heart will keep on pumping. Those are means of your continuing to live. When God ordains an end, he also ordains the means to that end. So when God ordains that an individual will repent and believe, he also ordains the means to that end. And the Bible specifies these two means for conversion. Hearing God's word, that's when an unbeliever hears God's word, whether the gospel is preached in a sermon or proclaimed through some other medium like a book or a talk or a personal conversation. Someone has to hear God's words. That's one means. And then the other is prayer. Someone asks God to save an unbeliever. Let me show you, show you this briefly in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach, through our words, through our gospelizing, through that to save those who believe. So hearing God's words is a God-ordained means for unbelievers to exercise a God-enabled repentance and faith. And then let's consider Acts 13. When Paul and Barnabas preached in Antioch and Pisidia, they first preached to Jews, then preached to Gentiles. Acts 13.38 says, When the Gentiles heard this, they heard the words of the Lord. When they heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Look at that last line real carefully. Does it say as many as believed were appointed to eternal life? No. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So hearing God's word is a God-ordained means of, of election being accomplished, applied, and worked out. Now, that's not the only one. Note how Paul connects election, faith, preaching, and prayer in this passage. This is Second Thessalonians 2 and 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you, there's election, as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief, that's faith, in the truth, which was spoken and they heard and believed. To this, he called you, the effectual calling, and that's regeneration. He called you through our gospel, so you heard the words, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, brothers, pray for us. Now, what should we pray for? That the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you. That word speed ahead, it translates a word that you could say spread rapidly or even run. So we get to pray that God's word would run and transform idolaters into God worshipers. That's what we get to do when we pray. Prayer is a God-ordained means 
for God to grant repentance and faith to the elect in response to hearing the gospel. That's why Paul exhorts us, devote yourselves to prayer, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. Now, if hearing God's word and praying are God-ordained means for God to save people, then how should we live in light of that? And I'd sum up the application like this. Proclaim God's words, his word to unbelievers, support others who do that, and ask God to save unbelievers. Don't try to discern who the elect are. Only God knows that. Your responsibility and your privilege is to proclaim the gospel to anyone and everyone indiscriminately. God commands in uh, Acts 17, all people everywhere must repent. Luke 24, repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So here are three exhortations for us, brothers and sisters. First, obey God, even if you don't have answers to all your philosophical questions. So why should you even bother proclaiming God's word and praying if God has already chosen to save specific individuals? Why? And the answer is because God tells you to. And that should be enough. And whatever God commands you is for your good. Remember, God has ordained both the end and the means to that end. It'd be foolish to conclude, well, if if God has ordained that I'm going to live for 10 more years, then I don't need to worry about eating or sleeping or breathing. How foolish to think that way. If God ordains the end, he ordains the means to that end. You're responsible to keep eating and sleeping and breathing. That, that responsibility is perfectly compatible with God's meticulous sovereignty about how long you will live. Similarly, God ordained which individuals he will save. But you don't know who they are. You get to proclaim the gospel to unbelievers and pray for them. And that responsibility is perfectly compatible with God's meticulous sovereignty about whom he chose to save. Again, it's not our job to try to discern who the elect are. It's our job to proclaim God's word and to pray. God ordains both the end and the means. And on your own, you cannot possibly proclaim the gospel to every single individual on the planet. But you can testify on behalf of King Jesus to your family and your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers, you can pray for them and for the nations. You can support others who are devoting their lives to this regionally, nationally, internationally. As 3 John 8 says, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. And two more exhortations that go together here. God's sovereignty should encourage you to evangelize and support missionaries. God's sovereignty doesn't undermine evangelism. It supports it. Acts 18 says, The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Don't be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I'm with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. And Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So be encouraged that wherever you are, God may have people whom God chose before the foundation of the world. And third exhortation, God's sovereignty should encourage you to pray for unbelievers. And here's where Christians, both Arminians and Calvinists, seem to universally affirm 
God's sovereignty in salvation. We thank God for saving us. I mean, how, do you ever pray a prayer? You know, uh, thank you, God, that I'm so smart that I decided to choose you. Does anyone pray that way? Christians don't think that way. We, we just know that God saved us, right? So we, we thank God for our own conversion. And, and how do we ask God to save specific in, in, individuals? When you pray for an unbeliever, is it, uh, please uh, work with his free will to, uh, so that he will on his own decide to, I, I don't know how to pray that way, but we, we pray, Lord, save him, right? Give him a new heart, regenerate him, make him love what you love and hate what you hate. That's how we pray because that's how it works. Give him a new heart. Salvation is from the Lord. So God's sovereignty should encourage you to pray for unbelievers. So here's how I'd answer question eight. How does God accomplish and apply his sovereign plan to save individuals? Through Christ, through the Holy Spirit, through hearing God's word, and through prayer. Question nine is how do we know if God has elected an individual? Election is scary for some people. People will think, am I chosen by God? How can I know for sure? And, and what about, you fill in the blank with my family member, my friend, my coworker. What about them? So election may be alarming because it means that God, the creator, is supremely sovereign and that we, the creatures, are not. We really prefer to be in control, don't we? But what God has revealed about election should be comforting and humbling. So how do we know if God has elected an individual? First, calling and justification are evidence of election. Paul says in Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And then he supports that statement with comforting words, with four proofs. First, God predestined or elected those whom he foreknew. Second, God called those whom he predestined. Third, God justified those whom he called. And fourth, God glorified those whom he justified. This is a five-link, unbreakable chain that starts with foreknowledge and goes to predestination and then calling, justification, and glorification. You can't benefit from any one of those without benefiting from all five. It's all or nothing. So, if God has effectively called you, that means that he has regenerated you, he's enabled you to repent and believe. If that's the case, if you've repented and believed, then you're elect. And if you're justified, that's a result of God-enabled faith. That means you're elect. If you're justified, you've believed, you're elect. So your calling and your justification are evidence of your election. Here's a second line of reasoning. Following Jesus, the shepherd, is evidence of election. Here I'm going to John 10, 27. So Jesus' sheep are the elect. And Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, 
and they follow me. Do you follow Jesus as your shepherd? Do you listen to him and follow him? Then what Jesus says next should be a, a precious assurance to you if your answer is yes. This is the next two verses, John 10, 28, and 29. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. The following Jesus the shepherd is evidence of election. And here's a third line of reasoning. It's from 1 Thessalonians 1. A transformed life is evidence of election. In 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul thanks God because he knows that God has elected him. Excuse me, that God has elected the Thessalonians. And the evidence for their election is their transformed lives after they responded to the gospel. So they received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's evidence of their election. They turned to God from idols. That faith and repentance is evidence of election. They no longer were serving sin, but the living and true God. That's evidence of election. They're eagerly awaiting Jesus' return. Evidence of election. A transformed life is evidence of election. And the, the most clear application of this that I know of in Scripture is from Second Peter 1, which I would summarize with three words, confirm your election. Confirm your election. Peter tells us how to do this in Second Peter 1, 5 to 11. We confirm that God has called us and elected us by cultivating virtues. I'm going to read this passage, Second Peter 1, 5 to 11. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, here it is, be all the more diligent to confirm, to make certain about, to be sure of your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I can't read that last sentence without thinking of pilgrim Christian entering the celestial city at the end of the pilgrim's progress. So we confirm that God called and elected us by cultivating those virtues in Second Peter 1. We continually grow in those virtues to the end. That's what Christians do. So that means that election is not an excuse to be lazy or lawless. We must be diligent to confirm our election. So I'd answer question nine this way. How do we know if God has elected an individual? Evidence of election includes one's calling, justification, and transformed life. And now question 10. Did God elect babies who die and the severely mentally disabled? 
When my wife, Jenny, was pregnant for the fourth time, she miscarried, and it was heartbreaking. And during that time, we learned that miscarriages are far, far, far more common than we realized. One in four pregnancies ends in a miscarriage. So the question I'd like to raise here is, will those babies live forever in the new heaven and new earth? What about aborted babies? Stillborn babies. Babies who die within a few years of birth. Did God elect those babies? Well, the Bible does not directly answer this difficult question, but it is natural and good to consider it. And I'll attempt to answer it by briefly unpacking eight statements. Here's the first. Babies who die are sinners by nature, not sinners by choice. The Bible, especially the second half of Romans 5, Romans 5, 12 to 21, teaches both original guilt and original sin. So let me define those, those two terms for you. Original guilt means that we're guilty before God because all humans are originally in Adam. That's original guilt. Original sin means that we inherit a sinful nature. From the moment we are conceived, we are sinners by nature. At some point early in our lives as we develop, we become sinners by choice. We sin because we're sinners. That is, we sin by choice because we're sinners by nature. And sinners by... Uh, I'll say it this way. Babies, babies who die are sinners by nature, but not sinners by choice. They've not yet become sinners by choice. That's my first statement of eight. Now here's number two. God condemns people who consciously rebel against him. Listen to Romans 1, 18 to 20. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So Paul's teaching that God's wrath is against people who unrighteously suppress the truth about God. God's revealed this truth to them through creation and through their conscience. And the result is they're without excuse. That's what Romans 1.20 says. So they are without excuse. Now in Romans 1, Paul is not directly addressing the destiny of babies and the severely mentally disabled. But I think this passage applies Here's how. So God condemns people who consciously, consciously rebel against him. That implies that God does not condemn people who do not consciously rebel against him. People who have not consciously committed any evil in their bodies. I'm getting that phrasing from 2 Corinthians 5.10 and Revelation 20, 12 and 13. So I agree with, with John MacArthur how he puts it here. We are saved by grace but damned by works. 
saved by grace, damned by works. So I conclude, God may be merciful to babies and those with severe mental disabilities because they have not consciously rebelled against him. That's statement two. Here's statement three. God judges some people more severely than others. Matthew 11, Jesus warns Capernaum, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So that establishes the principle that God judges some people more severely than he judges other people. God will judge some people less severely based on the degree to which God revealed himself to them. That may imply that God is merciful to infants who die and to those with severe mental disabilities since they could not understand any of God's revelation. That's number three. Statement four. No human is saved apart from Christ. Acts 4.12 There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus, the Messiah, is the exclusive Savior. No human is saved apart from Jesus, the Messiah. So if God mercifully saves babies who die and those with severe mental disabilities, he somehow saves them by faith alone in Christ alone. And I say somehow because the Bible doesn't specify how or when. The concept, by the way, of a regenerate infant is conceivable since God had a special relationship with Jeremiah and John the Baptist while they were still in their mother's womb. That's number four. Here's number five. King David implies that God mercifully saves babies who die. In 2 Samuel 12, there's a story about David's son through Bathsheba. A text says, The Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. And King David earnestly fasted and prayed. He asked God to save the baby. And the baby died. And then here's what King David told his servants. While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And when he says, I will go to him, it's possible that David meant that he would soon join his son in the grave, not heaven. But I think that since David changes from this dour mourning that he's going to lose his son to a confident optimism that he will personally be with his son again, I think he implies that God mercifully saves babies. So here's how I would conclude my answer to the question. The Bible implies that God mercifully saves babies who die and the severely mentally disabled. I think this conclusion is most persuasive when we attempt to correlate what God has revealed all throughout Scripture. I don't think we can prove this conclusion with 100% certainty, but I think it's 
almost certainly true, and it seems so probable that I think it's pastorally responsible to comfort grieving parents with these truths. And I can tell you from experience that these truths have comforted my family. So my wife and I have a fifth child. We've not yet met. We named the child Anastasis Hope. Anastasis is the Greek word for resurrection. And my family confidently expects, that's what the word hope means, confidently expects that we'll meet this child at the resurrection in bodily form. And I think there are sound reasons for believing this, even though the Bible doesn't answer all our questions about it. So I'd like to follow up with two more statements. Number seven is an application for us all. Trust God who is always just and good. So Moses asks in Genesis, that's not Moses, that'd be, um, that'd be Abraham. Yeah. So Abraham asks in, in Genesis 18, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Shall he not do what is just? Yes, the judge of the whole earth always does what is right. So we should not be anxious that God may do something unjust. All right? If he always does what is right, we don't need to worry that he'll do something wrong. So can you pray with the psalmist in Psalm 119, this line? You are good and do good. Will you trust God to always be good and do good? That's your application. And then I'd like to end with speculation. God's sufficient word is intentionally not explicitly clear on the destiny of babies who die. God has reasons for everything he does. We often, we usually don't know what they are, at least what all of them are. So why isn't the Bible more clear on this issue? I don't know, but I have a guess. I suspect one reason that, uh, that the Bible is not more clear about the destiny of babies who die is that people would be more inclined to do horrible things if the Bible explicitly says that all babies will go to heaven and not hell. Some people, including parents, would be more inclined to murder babies to ensure that those babies would go to heaven. Some would care less about helping infants who die of sickness some would be less inclined to help unborn children in the wombs of their mothers. Someone reason, some people would reason like this. It'd be better to murder babies than to risk letting those babies grow up and go to hell. And to all that reasoning, Paul would reply, God forbid, may it never be. So I'm just speculating why the Bible is not more clear. Uh, we'll, we'll probably learn more details about this in the new heavens and new earth. And we'll look back and marvel at God's wisdom. So we'll pause. Oh, wait. So here's how I'd answer question 10. Did God elect babies who die and the severely mentally disabled? Almost certainly. The Bible does not explicitly say, but it implies that God mercifully saves babies who die and the severely mentally disabled. Now let's pause and, and plan to answer our final five questions about predestination next week. But for now, let's revel in these truths related to God's sovereignly 
and graciously choosing to save specific individuals. So brothers and sisters, let's respond first by praying and then by singing. So pray with me. Our Father in heaven, may your will be done, both what you command and what you decree on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you, God, for planning, accomplishing, and applying our salvation. Would you please help us faithfully and fruitfully proclaim your word to unbelievers, to our family, our friends, our neighbors, and others whom you appoint for us to interact with? Please strengthen your servants all over this world by giving them words to open their mouths boldly to proclaim the gospel. Father, please help us confirm our election by continually growing in faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And we praise you, Father, that your work is perfect because all your ways are justice. We don't understand all the reasons that babies die and that some people are severely mentally disabled but we do know that you are just and that you do what is right. You are good and you do good, and we trust you. Please increase our trust. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.